Proverbs 22, verse 16 to 21 is what we'll cover this evening. Um, I know uh, verse 16 was technically part of our section last time, but didn't get to spend much time on it. I think it is uh, a very uh, relevant proverb to uh, our lives. Um, Not that all the proverbs aren't relevant, but some of them have a more immediate relevance than others, at least based on how one might interpret it in the moment. Of course, there's broad application in all the Proverbs. Uh, What I'm going to do is ask Mr. Hugh to read verse 16, and then Sam, if you'll read 17, Mr. Keith, 18, and Mr. Tom, 19, and then I'll read our final two verses, uh, verses 20 and 21. So whenever you're ready, Mr. Hugh, 22, 16. He who oppresses the poor to increase his riches, and he who gives to the rich will surely come to poverty. Incline your ear, and hear the words of the wise, and apply your heart to my knowledge. For it is good to keep these sayings in your heart, and always ready on your lips, so that your trust may be in the Lord. I have instructed you today, even you. Have not I written to thee excellent things in counsels and knowledge, that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth, that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee? Amen. So, starting with verse uh, 16, like I said last time, we kind of sort of touched on it, but I wanted to spend a little bit of time on it uh, this evening. Uh, Let me begin by saying, Woe be to the man who oppresses for no other reason than his own sinful pleasure. Right? But in verse 16 here, we have a man who oppresses for a specific reason. We could say a double woe is due unto the man who oppresses for selfish gain. And there's another wrinkle to this as well, and we'll get into it in a moment. But as you look at the words of this proverb, maybe it reminds you of the story of Robin Hood, but flipped on its head, right? It would present the reason for Robin Hood's cause. Remember, Robin Hood stole from the rich to give to the poor, so the legend goes. Um, But uh, here we have the man stealing from the poor, to give to the rich. Um, This sad uh, behavior, we could say, is behind much church corruption from the past, where the people were fleeced in order that the leaders of the church, who often stand as the rich uh, in history, uh, they would benefit from it, as well as plenty of political corruption as well. In fact, if you read the book of James, um, and I actually taught it this way whenever we went through James a, a few months ago. I think it's been about around a year or, or a little more now. Went through it in adult Sunday school. And the rich in James, I argued, are those who were oppressing the Christians. And we uh, know from the time period in which James was written that it would not have been Roman officials because they're basically called false brothers in the book of James. It would have been those who were Jewish and were persecuting the early Christians. That's very often a critique of the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Sadducees of the Lord Jesus. He says that they made themselves rich. So you kind of have that that theme throughout Scripture, both of an ecclesiastical, a churchly corruption, but we could also see it and have it applied in a political sphere as well. We do not need to be blind to the fact that this could and indeed does happen today. Uh, It happens in plenty of churches where the people are fleeced in order to improve the state of the rich. And it seems a bit counterintuitive, doesn't it? Why would you steal from poor people? Because that's what's happening in this proverb. They're being stolen from. Why would you steal to the poor in order to give to the rich? We'll get to that in just a moment. We could say, thanks be to God... He tells us that those who live under such a tyranny will be vindicated. Because as Mr. Hugh read to the end of the verse, they will come to poverty. Or as Johnny Cash says, God's going to cut them down. 
right? It's going to happen. The positive virtue commended is not to take from the rich to give to the poor, right? So the positive virtue is not living like Robin Hood, because that is also stealing, right? The proverb condemns stealing, although of a certain sort, a kind wherein a superior takes advantage of inferiors simply because they can. Though the rich be appeased, that does not bring lasting security. Because you notice in the proverb, it is not technically the rich who is, uh, in the second half of the proverb, excuse me, it's not just the rich who are stealing in the first half, but there's another group mentioned in the second half, those who steal in order to give to the rich. Yeah. Right? So, as, as, we, often, as we know, often those who are rich are those who have all the power. Those who have all the money have all the power and vice versa. And the proverb is teaching us that even though you may find yourself in a situation where you could appease those who are wealthy, or those who are in power, you need to know that that does not bring lasting security. You and the person whom you're appeasing by stealing and giving to them is um, in a state of danger before the Lord. I would also say that this proverb serves as a prohibition against man-pleasing as well, especially the second half. Because why do people give money on top of money and um, privilege and status and all those things to rich people. Well, so the rich people will leave them alone. right? Or so the rich people will continue. It's a bribe, right? Right, those kind of things. So it's a type of man-pleasing, right? They're afraid what will happen if they stop appeasing the rich. And one of the uh, preeminent places in Scripture where man-pleasing is addressed is in Galatians chapter 1, where Paul says, For do I now persuade men or God? Or do I seek to please men? For if I yet please men, I should not be the servant of Christ. Now this is a, you know, a dangerous thing when we start wading into this, and it becomes very practical. Um, sometimes we uh, practice men-pleasing, and we simply call it making peace. Right? Right? Yeah. Now, there's a sense in which making peace can be a good thing, right? Where you have to come to a compromise and those kind of things. But I'm sure if you sat long enough and thought about it, you could probably think of a situation where you have agreed to do something that you know you shouldn't have just to make the peace. But what you're really doing is man-pleasing, right? That's part of what is being condemned in this proverb as well, because man-pleasing is in order, excuse me, man-pleasing in order to avoid conflict is sinful, right? That's what Paul posits, right? I'm preaching the clear gospel. Remember earlier in Galatians 1, he says, even if an angel comes to you and tells you a different gospel, you consider them to be a curse. Like, no, don't believe anything else because you've received this message directly from Christ and through us as sent apostles. You hear a different gospel, those people are a curse. He's not come to make peace with it. Right? Same idea here. We're not to appease those who might come. Right? We're not to make nice with those who would offer us things. We're not to make nice with those who are over us who have power in order to manipulate us, right? Because that's what they're doing. Man-pleasing in order to avoid conflict is sinful. We must be truth-tellers, or this proverb teaches that we will come, as Mr. Hugh read, to poverty. Because, be honest, what we do in man-pleasing is we do it for the, the long run, right? We do it so that things will work out better in the long run. But what this proverb is teaching is that it doesn't work out better in the long run. You lose the person you're pleasing, and you lose whatever you think you're keeping. Now, we need to remember this when we deal with our wives. Right? So I was just thinking. Yeah? Hmm. We need to remember this when we deal with our wives. Yes, we deal with our wives in gentleness. But the husband is called the head of the house. That doesn't just mean he's the last vote. Right? 
doesn't just mean he's the tiebreaker, right? It means he's the leader of the home. And so often, especially in the world that we're in today, you love your wife by letting her get her way, even if she's wrong. Happy wife, happy life, man. <laughs> right? Which is just right. Mama's not happy. Nobody. I mean, I grew up. I grew up under that mindset. Yeah. Like I, I heard that all the time. Yeah, and just right. think about it for just a moment. Uh, not saying that women are the only ones able to do this, but because we're husbands and men, we can frame it this way. A happy wife, because she gets her way does not necessarily mean that the home is good. Right? It might be quote-unquote good for her, but what this proverb teaches is that both you and her are going to end up in a state of poverty. I mean, not necessarily material, but whatever you think you're gaining from it, you actually lose in the long run. Right? So we have to stand up and, and make the right call on those kinds of uh, issues. Um, I would also say we need to remember this in dealing with our children. Because our children, um, it's, it's cute when they're babies. But when they're starting to get out of the toddler phase and they become young children and they become teenagers, we lose sight of how they're manipulating us. Right? Oh, that's, she's a daddy's girl. Right? Or that's a mama's boy. That kind of thing. It's the same idea. And, you know, the, the verbiage, you might say, that comes with this is, well, I want my child to know that I'm, I'm there for them as, as much as their best friend is. Or I, I don't want my children to view me as an enemy or, or whatever the case may be. As if what God has given us to be to our children is a friend. We're not. Right? Totally different relationship. It doesn't mean we don't want our children to love us. But I'll, I'll be honest with you. No matter what I've been through with my parents, they are still my parents. I can't say that for all my friends that I've had. Right? So the relationship is totally different. And we have to remember that working downward towards our children, that we cannot let them manipulate us. Yeah? I was shocked the first time I heard the phrase, I am, I am not your friend, I'm your father. I was shocked at that. Mm-hmm. I, I don't have anything. <laughs> it's just that's that's the mindset I was I was in. That your father is your friend. Well, coming out of yeah, yeah, and your father was so your parents were supposed to be your friends. No, I'm not your friend. I'm your father. Mm-hmm. That's right. Yeah, <clears throat> yeah. You don't have to like me, but you're gonna sleep here tonight, right? <laughs> And you're going to wake up here tomorrow, and I'm still going to be your dad. You know? mm-hmm. Friendships end, but fatherhood doesn't. You know? I mean, of course, it ends at death in a sense, but even once you die, you're still their dad. Um, Christ's promise of leading his people into truth by his spirit is meant to remove any fear of man. Right? Because, I mean, I would argue that someone who is practicing Proverbs 22.16 that is stealing from someone in order to give to someone over them, right? Or that is so manipulated by someone over them that they will do whatever they have to to those under them in order to get that person over them off their back, right? Mm-hmm. Right? It's this manipulative idea. Mm-hmm. Right? That when we live in that, we're living as man pleasers. We've been overcome by the fear of man. And we know that Scripture teaches in the New Testament, I'm going to read an example from Acts in just a second, that Christ does not give us a spirit of fear, but a spirit of boldness, a spirit of courage. Do you remember what God said to um, Joshua, in the beginning of Joshua, be strong and courageous. Acts 4, 29 and 31. Listen to this. Remember uh, Peter praying, right? says, Now, Lord, behold their threatenings, and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. You know, the book of Acts, the, the temptation that the apostles themselves faced. 
It's called the Acts of the Apostles for a reason. It's a history of the er, the early church work, early work of the church, however you want to phrase that, of the apostles. And they understood the dependence upon the Holy Spirit. And we have to have that same thing. Um, I have, the, the longer I live as a father and a husband, I've become more and more convicted that I need to be either the first or tied for the first person awake every day so that I can prepare myself to approach the day in a godly fashion as a father and a husband. Because I set the tone. I do. From the word go every single day. And one of the ways that we can pray for ourselves and and our, our sons where their fathers and and uh, and even our fellow Christians is to pray for boldness um, in all these things. Um, how often, I mean, for those of you who are older, have gone through church conflicts where the righteous, those who are right, tend to be suppressed by those who have all the power. Right? Or... An example, elders in the church, especially today, tend to be more afraid of women than they are of men, right? Because you have to deal with the conflict, especially if your wife is among that group. And we have to have boldness to speak the truth, speak the truth in love, but this proverb, again, is a condemnation of man-pleasing. We don't take from anyone. We don't, let's put it even more basically, we don't turn from righteousness in order to appease the wicked who are over us. Because that's part of what this proverb is, is getting after. In verses 22 and 23, you have the same idea. We didn't read this, and we'll, Lord willing, we'll get to it next time, but it speaks to the same theme as verse 16, it says, Rob not the poor because he is poor. Neither oppress the afflicted in the gate, for the Lord will plead their cause and spoil the soul of those that spoiled them. So the Lord is on the side of the poor, the text says. Right? And we have to be, uh, be wary of that. The Lord will plead the cause of the afflicted and spoil the soul of those that spoiled them. So not only do we become ultimately uh, impoverished, but our souls are in the crosshairs of God Almighty if we practice Proverbs twenty two sixteen and its implications. What a, what a warning, right? And then in verses uh, 17 through 21, did anybody have anything on verse 16 you wanted to talk about before I move on? tax collectors in the mm-hmm. um, and you know how, what they were known for obviously the fact that even in Zacchaeus repentance uh, in Luke 18 it, it's immediately combated in his repentance like he is giving back what he has taken in, a, in abundance like he says he's going to give half of his wealth to the poor and give back fourfold mm-hmm. to anyone who he has right. manipulated from anybody who he's stolen anything from. So it's the the you know the extreme measure that he took in partaking of this exact sin to mm-hmm. repent. Yeah. I I hear you. And um you know here here's something that it's not as esoteric Hidden as, as what you you talked about, but I and, and this is more generalized. I see this as what exactly exactly that the elite in America have done mm-hmm. to, to 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 the people. I mean, oppressing the poor, middle class, poor, middle class, whatever you want, particularly the poor, and to increase the, the rich to the an elite class. Mm-hmm. That's what's developing in our country. Oh, yeah. 
and the elite and serfdom is what's going on. I mean, and and the rich take care of their own. That's what it's boiling down to. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've thrown out a lot of the basic tenets in this country. Yeah. For this, uh, for the benefit of the elite. Yeah, and the kind of the principle, like if you wanted to imagine this proverb is like presenting us with various bubbles, right? You've got the the man who is being oppressed, the man who's being stolen from in the first half, and then the man who's benefiting from it. And then in the second half, it's almost like you have a middleman established. Mm-hmm. Right? And it's not that the poor are meant to be over the rich. Right. Like it's not that the bubbles are inverted. It's that righteousness is supposed to go over all the top of them. Right? Because otherwise, yeah. everybody's going to be poor. Yeah, there's three classes right there. Yeah. What, 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 what I see through, through like Reverend Jesse Jackson <laughs> and uh, Reverend Al Sharpton, they, they have used their people for their yeah. own benefit. Yep. Of course, South Carolina ran Jesse Jackson out of South Carolina a long time ago. But they, they saw what he was. But to keep, how do I want to say it? To keep their people under their foot I guess is what I'm trying to say, Mm -hmm. in leading them. And yet they call themselves reverend. It just flies in my face. Peace in the flock. I mean, they they manipulate those those people however they wanted to. And yet they haven't changed. Yeah. I I mean, there there are some that, that are changing. Don't get me wrong. The majority of the blacks would still follow mm-hmm. Al Sharpton or, you know, mm-hmm. Jesse Jackson. And, and look where, and again, I, that's mm. taking a political view, taking a look at the politics in the, uh, in the country. But that's true. I mean, I could, I hate to say it, but that's what the Democratic Party, unfortunately. I mean, as a general rule, has mm-hmm. done. I mean, look what it's done to the cities. Oh yeah. Look what a, a, abortion. Why abortion? What what's the? It's 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 an enslavement, primarily primarily yeah. enslavement of the poor black community. Yeah. Well, abortion is the is a picture of this proverb as well. Yeah. No one is more poor. Than an infant in the womb, right? Right, and no one is more easily oppressed. But everyone who commits an abortion, the people who perform abortions, thinks that they are benefiting from it. That they're lacing. I mean, in some sense, they are lacing their pockets. But we know that you know that will come to an end. But also, I mean, like we we are to view our children as the greatest form of wealth that we can attain. Mm-hmm. That we are passing on our legacy to future generations, mm-hmm. and so by oppressing the poor, by placing, say, Planned Parenthoods in the most oppressed and the most wealth, like uh, wealth-ridden areas of our nation, you know, like the, the most impoverished. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, what you're doing is you're you're taking away that generational wealth from these people. Yep. No, I mean, reminded of the words of Christ, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Because this proverb is showing us that no matter how much wealth you accumulate, it it ultimately means nothing. No. Vanity of vanities. Vanity of vanities. Right. Well, just like this situation with Hunter Biden and that illegitimate child that he had. Okay? I mean... I just can't understand him denying that that's his child. Yet he supports it. He supported the woman. You know. 
Is that what Biden is doing now? Saying it's not his son? Well, kind of like. Okay. I hadn't seen that. Yes. Wouldn't be surprised, though. <laughs> well, he, he named all his other grandchildren, never named this other four-year-old little girl who was Hunter Biden's, right. you know, love child. Right. And, um, oh, I see. And, and, and so he disacknowledges, disavows, effectively dis, disavowing, mm-hmm. you know. Right. But that's, but I mean, grandchild. I, I, one way I have seen this, not uh, in our church, but I do know that I, I grew up under it, um, that when the pastor would make certain families unhappy, and those families were big tithers, they would... Hold that over the pastor. Yeah. They would hold it over the pastor's head. They sure would. And sometimes the pastor would acquiesce, and you could tell a difference in his preaching. I mean, I was you know too young, but I, I mean I've heard those stories from my parents and friends in the community of churches that I grew up in. That you know, if you preach against X, Y, and Z, or you keep preaching like this, pastor, we're going to have to start withholding our tithe, and you know, you know, you're not going to change. We've been withholding our tithe. I guess we'll just leave. You know, and you got two or three generations in the church, and that's a smaller country church, and a, right. or a church our size, or whatever, and you're going to risk losing, you know, fifteen, twenty people, take a cut in your salary. I mean, all those things. You can. I'm not saying it. It makes like it's right to do, but you know, pastors are put in that situation a lot more than we would like to know. It's just true. That's why the pastor probably needs to be at an arm's length. As, as much as you don't want to be, in some senses, maybe I'm using the wrong word, arms length, but you need to be constantly telling, calling a spade a spade. Oh, yeah. For and, sure. And, you know. Don't ever let the people get comfortable. I mean, correct. <laughs> no, well, I mean, I, seriously. I noticed, I noticed, now, um, uh, I like to listen to, um, RC obviously, and he just like <laughs> I like that is Sunday for church. <laughs> I listen down and eat my breakfast. I listen to it later. He, I've heard him do this before. He says whatever he's talking about, blah, blah, blah. and 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 I would venture to guess, I would venture that there are some here today who are not saved, who do not know the Lord, you know, and. Who are fighting him every step, whatever the the, the passage mm-hmm. that he was in, and he he does that. He's made that clear mm-hmm. throughout his sermons. You yep. can hear that theme. You know, he never he, he never it, even in a big church like that one, at the flagship church of the denomination. I don't can I call it that? Well, they all weren't. Uh, they haven't been in the PCA until this year. They're joining the PCA now. R.C. Sproul's church was independent. His whole ministry well, in I Florida. Did, I didn't know that. Yeah, they're joining the PCA this year. Well, he never no, 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 let them really. So, so it was an independent reform. So, but he never let them get. You can tell he never mm-hmm. let people get comfortable. Yeah. With. I mean, not and as a trying to reach out, but you yeah. Know. This is one reason it's so important too for pastors to uh, build some. Um, what's the word? Uh, what's that? That uh, book by the um, Arabic guy um, about the economics, um, where you're you're not vulnerable, anti fragile. Yeah. Um, where Pat, this you know, kind of a, a more recent term, but how pastors, especially, and men with uh, important jobs, but jobs that place them in places where they could be easily manipulated, how important it is for them to be anti-fragile. And basically, what fragile is is this idea that um, you know your livelihood depends on you having that job. So any threat to that job because of the financial dependence you have on it, 
you're probably going to acquiesce to it in order to keep that financial stream coming. Therefore, anti-fragile is to where you are not dependent on that financial income so that you can actually work and live according to your conscience. Um, and pastors are just one example of careers that often come up when you start talking about that. Because, I mean, you could, especially the way seminaries charge and how much student debt so many men have when they come out of seminary. That's one reason I chose Greenville, because they have this goal to send you out with no student debt, and that's how I, I graduated with no student debt. Um, but, I mean, you think about it, a pastor comes out of seminary, he's got a couple of young kids and a wife, and he goes into his first pastorate, and you know he runs into these uh, cranky folks that don't like preaching like that, or or uh, committed biblical exposition and those kind of things, and they say, you know, Pastor, um, you're you're being a little too rough, or the, you know something like that. And he says, okay, well I'll lighten up, because he doesn't want to lose his job, and then he's preaching against his conscience week after week, and probably. I mean, maybe he is being too hard sometimes. I mean, it could be the case, but you know, normally it's not. Because I've never heard a sermon that was more offensive than the sermons that Christ preached. I was about to say, just imagine them saying that to Ezekiel. Right, or John the Baptist. Yeah. Right, I mean, it's just... So yeah, that's... If you have sons uh, that are planning to go into any career field really, but especially one that is known for not being overly well paid, where they're going to be even more dependent on their income than others. Uh, you need to prepare them uh, to be financially anti-fragile to where they can establish their own living in some other way. I got, I mean, I've never faced that, but I could imagine where that would be difficult if I had a situation where, you know, I had a, a group of heavy tithers tell me they were upset with me and I need to tone down my preaching or something like that where I could feel that temptation. You had it happen? I have not. But I could understand somebody in a situation like mine yeah. where the temptation would arise if they were put in that circumstance. Well, that's part of... Uh, that's part of... Huh. The search committee's responsibility of having chosen, put the right questions to the first candidate who's coming into that church to begin yeah. with. I mean, that's certainly part of the process for sure. sure for sure, because, if, you know, if anything, they should say, they should be in that position of saying, look, you're going to come into this, but you're not going to, you, we want you. To tell it like it is, you know, we want you to get, get along, but but at the same time, we want you to tell tell it like it is here, mm -hmm. not the way, you know, this isn't a cushy thing, you know? Yeah. Right? What if you walk into a ministry like Isaiah, though? Well, I mean... <laughs> and you, I mean, there's no way to know that before you get there. The Lord doesn't tell us like he told Isaiah. Nobody's going to listen. Yeah. Right. Nobody will listen to. You. Uh, I mean, that would really be something. Yeah, I mean, co comparatively speaking, nobody listened to Jesus either. I mean, his following was very small. Right. We know it became much larger after his ascension into heaven, but his, by all earthly circumstances, was very similar to Isaiah's. Anyway, that's just something to think about. Um, It's also why there is a significant rise in bivocational pastors happening right now. And the the economy... Right, well, and also the economy is making it even more of a necessity for pastors to have to find other uh, work because... Oftentimes the church is not even able to provide, even right. if they are, the heavy tithers are the still tithers. Right, yeah, yeah. Because of how expensive stuff is, and a lot of budgets and prices have been set when times were not at 15% or more inflation. So, you know. Great. It's tough. It is, yeah. <clears throat> but, uh, 
Let me get through the rest of these verses here. <laughs> verses 17 to 21. Um, they make a very obvious unity. You know how we've been saying when we get through the second half, or the latter two-thirds of the Proverbs, basically uh, chapter 10 and forward, there's, there's not a lot of consecutive Proverbs that are the same thing after, or that are not chronologically about the same thing, basically. Right, yeah, but these five, 17, 18, 19, five, um, form a very obvious unity. You have this, uh, each proverb building off of the previous and then ends its section in verse uh, 21. <clears throat> and just um, listening to Sam, I think, yeah, you read verse uh, 17. Uh, I think you're reading from the New King James. Um, and the King James uh, uses a little more uh, visual language. It says to bow down your ear. Right? So the Lord calls on us in this proverb to bend down and listen to these teachings. Um, bow down your ear and listen to the words of the wise. Get in really close, as it were, so that these things can be heard. And he says, once you've done this, then you will be required to act, required to apply your heart unto God's knowledge. And as you know, using the verbiage from other Proverbs, when we're getting wisdom, right? All the getting of wisdom we do in our studies brings with it this requirement. We must act upon it. Lest we be like those who St. James condemns in the first chapter of his epistle. We'll read that in just a second. But just looking at uh, the words, so bow down your ear, hear the words, and apply your heart. Verse 17. All right, so apply your heart would be, uh, like I said before, the heart in, in, in the Old Testament especially doesn't carry this idea of an organ. Right? It's the center of the person out of which the action comes. Right? Uh, almost like the word soul. Most modern translations will use that word occasionally in these places. So bow down your ear and hear, and then apply your heart to this knowledge. Because it's a pleasant thing, King James says, if you keep them within you. Right? So if you keep the words, it's a pleasant thing. Notice the promise of that. It is a pleasant thing if you keep them within you. Because so often we look at these commands of God and we almost think of them as outside of us as something that we have to attain to. But because of the way the Bible speaks of meditating and, and here, bowing down, hearing, and applying, these things are within us. It says, They shall be with all, oh, excuse me, they shall with all be fitted in thy lips. Meaning, they shall be fixed upon your lips if you practice the scriptures in the way that Solomon commends here. So that, like a Greek henna clause, but in Hebrew, so that thy trust, you individually, your trust may be in the Lord, I have made known to thee this day, even to thee. I love how, and I noticed, uh, um, Mr. Tom, when you read it, it's, I think yours says, even to you, right at the end of verse uh, 19, modern uh, pronoun there, uh, but, but it's in, in the Hebrew is singular, right? So it's almost like as the Lord recorded this that he wanted us to know this is not just Solomon speaking to his sons, but it's even to you as well, right? Even to you who are reading this, right? yes, even you. I think there's a hymn that says that, right? Yes, even me or something like that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> um, but he means this for all who would read and have I not written to the excellent things and counsels and knowledge that I might make thee know the certainty of the words of truth that thou mightest answer the words of truth to them that send unto thee yeah this, this thing even you yeah you're right it's, it sounds like you're reading along here and you're, you're going to sleep even you right yeah exactly yeah yeah and what we learn in this passage, I would say, is that, that obedience leads to joy. Right? Not viewing the Word of God as outside of you and something you attain to, 
Though, of course, there's kernels of truth in that, but it's this idea that we bow down and hear the words, apply them in our lives. It's a pleasant thing, God says, if we keep them within us, within ourselves. And because of this, they will be fitted or fixed upon our lips. And why do they need to be fixed on our lips? Well, because at the end of verse 21, he speaks of those who would send to us and ask us for wisdom. So that you might answer the words of truth to those that send unto you. I know there's various ways that that's translated in verse 21, but that's uh, one of the more literal renderings. Right? Solomon tells his sons, including us, that he gives these proverbs that our trust may be in the Lord. He says that he has written excellent things in counsel and knowledge actions to take, instruction to heed, in order that we might be abundantly sure. Notice he says that over and over again, that you might be sure, that you might know that your trust might be in the Lord. Like, this is why I've written these things. And it's framed around hearing and applying. Um, he says, and also when the occasion comes that we would be summoned for words of truth, we'll have something to say. What a purpose of the Bible to consider, isn't it? The words of Scripture are given that you might have something to say. That's the conclusion of verse 21. And as I promised, I would read to you from James, chapter 1. You know, James's famous warning about being a hearer only. He says, For if any be a hearer of the word, and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass. He beholds himself and goes his way and immediately forgets what manner of man he was. But whoever looks into the perfect law of liberty, which is by implication the glass, and continues therein, being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this man shall be blessed in his deeds. <clears throat> you about to say something, sir? I mean, it, it reminds me, I mean, there's many passages throughout the scriptures that kind of have this idea that help us understand that, you know, thought life is the mother of action. You know, Philippians 4, 8, and 9. You know, that he, where he talks about oh, yeah. you know, meditate on these things, but then he goes into what you have seen me do, you also ought to do, basically, in verse 9. And where, you know, we see passages like in Luke when Mary is observing her son. It says at multiple points that she stored up Mm. treasured up these things in her mind like when they lost Christ in Jerusalem and they went up for the feast day and they came back three days later and saw him in the temple and you know it says I do you not know that I'm about my father's business and rebukes his parents essentially there you know where he's you know conversing with the scribes in the temple you know he's it says that she stored and she treasured up these things in her heart you know and it's it's where you know when we read the word it's it's not as if we are to read it and then just let it data dump mm -hmm. it's we are to think about it we are to meditate on it we are to store it and treasure it up in our hearts so that way I mean like it says there where uh, you know that you have the words of truth but even I mean First Peter 3.15 right where to be ready to give a defense for the faith that is within you, right? So how are you preparing yourself to have those words of truth or be prepared mm -hmm. to give a defense? Is by storing up, mm -hmm. treasuring these things in your heart, by actually knowing what your faith professes, mm -hmm. you know, with our rule of faith, which mm -hmm. is the scriptures, right? Yeah, you remind me of apologetics. 
talking about that. First yeah. Peter three fifteen and Mr. Tom, you had asked me to do those lectures on apologetics, and I know they were a bit heady in some ways. Um, but part of my intent in doing that was to give way to another lesson that I have not yet been able to give. But it it would be this idea that what most people think of as apologetics, one is not really apologetics. But two, quite frankly, what I think would be most adequate today and what the scriptures commend to all of us, like in passages we just read, is that one of the best weapons we could have, or we could say the best weapon we could have, is simply to be familiar with the Bible. That because, you know, apologetics ultimately is for the purpose of evangelism. It's not a, Mm -hmm. a, a philosophical argument where we make ourselves look smart and then we can brag later on our podcast about how many debates we've been in. Right? The purpose of apologetics is to persuade people to faith in Jesus Christ. And because we live in an age that 99.95% of the people that we engage with on a regular basis who are not Christians are operating off of insane presuppositions, crazy, nonsensical um, conceptions of Christianity, simply knowing the Bible and being able to say, well, no, that's wrong and here's why, will go a long way, I think. Um, I, I'm about to, I think of that, Paul talks about, what is the passage, so that the man of, uh, man of God uh, uh, thoroughly like equipped for every good work to handle uh, yeah, help me. I was just looking for Second Timothy three sixteen. Okay. And seventeen. Yeah, read, read, read. All scripture is given by inspiration of yeah. God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect or complete, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. Yeah, and and that's probably where people have yeah, like you say, familiarity, probably memorize it. Something that we don't, I don't do enough of, and I, and that is memorizing scripture. Mm-hmm. That probably alone is probably to be able to memorize. I mean, that's 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 a, a really important thing. Again, I, I I do it by you know stuff like that verse right there. I I, I remember the fragments. Yeah, right. I remember the fragments, and I go to my. <laughs> I sometimes it's bad because I can't mm-hmm. remember. But, but I'll try to get the, uh, the uh, concords or try to see, you know, it's, it's easier when you got a computer these days yeah. to be able to pull that up. But to, to know these things just I, like that. And I, I think and maybe in a, in if, if we lived in a different age, then technical complicated apologetics would be, could be more useful. But because we are basically entering a time that is more akin to paganism than it is anything the Bible will quite frankly do just fine yeah right <laughs> I'm about to you know kiss off the red pill boys real quick but um I mean the FBI like with their their fraud division right what they do is they study real checks real what real checks right they actually take the actual, like an, uh, an authentic, real check, and they study all the ins and outs of it, where everything is, the particular numbers that are on it, the placement, what type of ink it is, what type of paper, whatever, right? The different stamps that are all over it, you know, hidden watermarks, everything about it, right? Everything that is on an authentic check, they know all the ins and outs of it. They're not studying all of the different ways in which a false, like a, you know, a, a false check might be forged, right? They're not studying, um, you know, the somebody took the ink from, like, a stamp kit in, you know, Family Dollar or something like that and used this particular, like, military stencil kit or whatever. 
they're not studying that. They're, they're studying the authentic thing. So that way, whenever they come across something that it is fake, they're able to identify it more easily. And so we have the scriptures. We have the word of God. And when we come across something that we know is contrary to what it states, that ought to be, this is the litmus test. This is the thing by which we got, we, we are able to determine, no, that's false, right? Like, what you're saying is clearly false because it contradicts exactly, like, right here. What we're, you know, let me show you this passage real quick. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. Um, and I think, I think as mature Christians, we know, we have a pretty darn good idea pretty quickly where, where the truth is coming from. Mm-hmm. Especially when you, you, you're passing, you're filtering everything through the, through the Holy Spirit. Right. Okay? So, so as a mature Christian, um, we, we quickly see. Um, I think the thing is to be able to, to, to just, re- again, I, I am, am as guilty as anybody else of not remembering enough uh, the verses right at, at hand uh, uh, probably as I should uh, and that actually is powerful that's very very powerful to be able to, to come out and, and, and state scripture pieces of it you mm-hmm. know that, and, um, yeah because the, the issues that we face in our day are not very complicated at all no. and they are most of them very blatantly contradicted by scripture that is very easily discernible and readily attainable. I mean, we're talking Genesis 1 stuff. Genesis 2. Right? Right. I mean, that's just right there in the in the wheelhouse of of the very first few passages you read as a Christian. Right? Even if you become a Christian later in life. I mean, you know that Genesis one is about the creation account. Whatever you think about the length, whatever you think about the length of days and whatnot, right? You you may not have an answer for that, but you do know that in the past, the beginning of time, God created Adam and Eve, man and woman, right? And that is enough to spark a seven-hour debate with anybody in the age in which we live. It just is. Yeah. And that I mean that's apologetics. It's also evangelism, because yeah. faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. I mean, and we're speaking the yeah. words. And yeah, that's what I meant mean by apologetics. I mean, I'm not talking about about apologetics. Right, right. I'm talking about the the tool. Mm-hmm. I, what I'm what I think of is is the tools to do mm-hmm. what we're talking about. Yeah. You know, I mean. Yeah. I just know a lot of people when they start talking about apologetics, they go to Acts 17, like like we did in the Sunday school class. And I, I really think that what Paul is doing there is would be quite difficult for us to do, just because he was engaging. A, where he engages on uh, the Areopagus and Mars Hill and all that stuff, where he's engaging in philosophy and he's memorized all these other writers and all that. And I, I did commend to y'all the the need to, in some way, if you really want to do apologetics, what you're going to have to do is read those other writers. Well, that's that's true, and we're not going to be, uh, uh, let's say, somebody like. Don't don't get me wrong here now, but I do think Robbie Zacharias. Yeah. You know, you don't. I mean, he fell. He did. But he was mightily. Yeah. Used, mightily mm-hmm. used to reach the thinkers and. Yep. True oh, yeah. apologetics filter uh, yep. technique. Uh, it, it, no, that's not our ministries mm-hmm. in general. Yep. You know, and there are other people too. I'm mm-hmm. saying, but it's just the daily tools. Mm-hmm. Like, see, that's something. Now, throw that out and <laughs> on a Sunday morning. If I say to you, uh, if I say to you, uh, that God uh, that. Uh, this whatever say just like that heathen mm-hmm. say something. What verse are you going to use to? It's a good verse to. I would also <laughs> going back to a little bit of what you said earlier about scripture memorization. While it's huge and it's it's helpful, very important. 
I would also say that just understanding general concepts of what the scripture has to say, rather than focusing on, I need to get every single word properly right yeah. in, in yeah. memorization. As long as you're able to regurgitate really what the form of what the script that passage is saying. You're paraphrasing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Like, and you're able to relay that to the, another person. I mean, you know, like that's that's enough. I mean, I, I, I would yeah. say, like, you know, the the form is what matters of what he's saying, not, not necessarily the letter. Yeah. There are several good scripture memory programs. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. John Piper's people have that one good one. I don't remember. I, I've, I remember I had it downloaded on my phone. Yeah, I can't remember the name of it either, but it, it gave you, like, you would have a verse every week. Yeah. And it would give you basically a different exercise every yeah. day with memorizing the verse and by the end of the week you have the verse memorized I mean guaranteed if you went through all the exercises they gave you and it, it would be something you could do literally on the toilet or reading your coffee in the morning it would take 30 seconds to a minute and then you'd have another verse memorized because Piper is real big on that too memorizing scripture um, not necessarily for like apologetic engagement right. but for you to treasure Right, you to treasure in your heart and focus on the promises of God so that you can live righteously. Yeah. I mean, the, the reality is, I kept keep saying it, it's like to call it today, I believe it was a Christian man. I mean, it's a different, different thoughts on the need for formal doctrine written down and stuff like that, but nevertheless, I think we, we talk... Uh, you gotta. It's important. We. I said to him. I said us Christians are believers. Believers, true believers, are the only ones. Think about this. The only ones who have the answer for what are these incredible problems we're having today. I mean, I mean you know, people wonder why, why, why. We we have. We have the actual answer. Um, so, I mean, I don't know how you always. <laughs> no, I uh, draw your attention to one more thing I just thought of with that last section in Proverbs 22, and then we can pray unless y'all have something else for, on our time here. But uh, notice the, I think, studying. Uh, the weather cycle with my son this week in his science class it's got me thinking like this <laughs> but the the circular nature of verses 17 through 21 it's, it's like a, a process you enter into right you bend down to hear the word the word goes into you and then by the end of verse 21 the word is coming out of you right 17 get down into the word the word goes into you by verse 21 the word is coming out of you and I'll be honest with you you know I don't intentionally memorize specific verses of scripture maybe in the way that, that most people do or maybe even in the way that I should but my grasp of the Bible as far as being able to remember where something occurs simply comes from reading it mm -hmm. right? and I know I as a pastor I generally have more time than most people except for maybe Mr. Hugh, because he's retired now, um, <laughs> to read the Bible in a day. But you'd be amazed just through prayer and reading the Bible and just thinking about it afterwards. right? Like Sam said, not just an information dump, but like just picking something to meditate on, how it will just stay with you. And then maybe you read that passage again in six months. Maybe you read it again a year later, or, or whatever. Yeah. And you it jogs your memory. And then the next time you run into somebody and you have that conversation and that concept comes up, the Spirit brings it, you know, to your mind, and you're like, "Oh yeah, I remember First Corinthians four, da 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 da," yeah. right? Yeah. And uh, it's, it's not rocket science. It's really not. I mean, there are ways to memorize tons of scripture. There are programs to do that, but there's also just the, I mean, the organic and 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 normal uh, acquisition of scripture that happens just by reading it a lot. Yeah, and also, I mean, just the idea that you were talking about with bow your ear, incline your ear. Incline. So that means that, like, you're, there's, like, a, a, a sort of, like, 
idea that's happening there where it's like whispering. Yeah. There's like an intimacy, right? Mm-hmm. Lean in. Where lean in mm-hmm. and hear these words. And, and who's the one speaking? I mean, obviously there it says the words of the wise. But we also, I mean, see, saw earlier in Proverbs where it's wisdom herself or himself. Right. And when we hear the word of the Lord, I mean, when we read the word of the Lord, we're hearing Christ speak to us is really what it is. Like, mm-hmm. there's a book, which I know Trent's read some of, at least, where there's this idea that this guy has where Scripture, in a sense, is, there's a real presence of the Lord in it when we come to it. And so, you know, when we come to the Word of God and we read it, like Samuel, like in the, when you were going through your sermon series in, uh, in First Samuel, where he, you know, he heard the word of the Lord saying Samuel, and you know he ran to, <laughs> to fight Eli, right? But eventually, Eli tells him, "Next time you hear this word, say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening." So here, we're like even you, right? Mm. Even you. Even you. So we come to the word of the Lord. Even you, you are to hear and say, "Lord, speak to me." For your servant is this. Mm. So it's it's uh, that real presence mm. where we actually are in conversation with the Lord. We have to have intentionality, mm-hmm. expectancy in our reading, mm-hmm. expecting to hear from God. Absolutely. And not just read words. I find myself um, being reminded of that quite often. I'm reading through Job right now, and Job is a real whiner. I mean, he, he is. He, he's a whiner. And um, not that he didn't go through bad things, not that he had didn't have uh, real questions, but and Anyway, to pay attention, to be intentional in what he is saying, what the Spirit has laid down that he is saying, uh, takes real work. So it's an intentionality. For us, it's, it's, to me, it's not worth a whole lot to just read the words. Yeah, sometimes, and there are seasons where it seems like you can't just get beyond that. Mm-hmm. Where, yeah. but I, I don't know who said it. It's attributed to mm-hmm. the Puritans, but most things are in the Reformed world. Um, they would say, "Pray until you pray." Yeah. And I would say the same thing about reading. Modern, modern read until phrase, you read. Modern phrase might be uh, "fake mm-hmm. until you make it." Something like that. Yeah. Just don't stop doing what you ought to do just because you aren't getting the fullness and the uh, encouragement and all those things. Keep leaning in. Keep bowing your ear. That's where I, again, Tabletop Magazine or or, or similar. All right, there are many times I just, I'm just, I'll read read the passage. Bugging through. Uh Bugging through and understanding that the. The, the commentary that follows each one of those passages. I mean, yeah, it, well, I find it sometimes, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll go before that a little bit so I remember what, 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 mm-hmm. this, what the context is or something. Uh, even, even if you do that much. Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a tradition in uh, certain churches. I know certain Scottish uh, Presbyterian ministers would do it they would almost give like a running commentary while they were doing scripture readings and their scripture readings would be 15 to 20 minutes long uh, because of that. And I'm not advocating for that practice, but there's something to having an amount of understanding while you're reading rather than waiting for the end and then going back, which is often why, why I will 
I got this from Dr. Pfeiffer, um, kind of give a, a brief summary of a chapter before I read it in, in public worship. Yeah, I mean, they used to do that over in the Anglican Church, some of them. Uh, sometimes it was mm -hmm. a practice in our church. Somebody, if they would have a lay person reading. Mm -hmm. I, it wasn't bad, provided that they're doing it properly, you know, getting the right idea, to actually give a, in this section we are seeing blah, 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 blah. Right, yeah. Blah, and it, we're talking about, you know, in 30 seconds. Yeah. Or whatever. And then go through it because it just you know I mean there's well, it, it just it makes it, helped, it easier to listen it helped, it helped the the scripture they have women scripture readers well it is especially useful when you're taking on just a whole <laughs> chapter I don't care if it's one I know I know I'm the same that's the reason why I say it don't mind what Listen, I don't mind, and I actually like listening to long sections of the scripture. Oh, yeah. Good thing you in the church you are, because Trent be reading like 74 verses every week. <laughs> <laughs> I did a few weeks ago uh, when I, I preached. None. None. Um, there was one when I read from Numbers and then read, I think it was one of the it was either Easter or, or the week after Easter, I think it was. It was like number 16, and then I read like 20 verses from John 20 or something like that. Yeah. And it was 50 verses in numbers. And then uh, <laughs> I was thinking about the length of my sermon after. So I, I was like, well, I guess it wasn't so bad. It's, it's, the majority of that is uh, 70 verses that I read, which takes about 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. I mean, because I try not to read too fast. Yeah. Um, yeah. Because it's, it, it, it's it, your pace is the same as what my mind works. Yeah, when one of our professors told us that we should read so that children who are learning to read can follow. <laughs>